Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 12. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are happy to be back as we continue our October marathon. Thanks in part to our friends over at Amazon.com. Don't forget that you can go to monorealradio.wixsite.com slash home. And there we have links to every film that we review here on Monoreal Radio direct to the Amazon Instant Video link. So if you need to catch up with these films or if you've never seen them before, that's a great way for you to watch them and then catch up with the reviews or follow along if you, uh, if you like. This one is, is one that you probably won't have to download. I think everybody has seen this one. The one that is going to wrap up October for us and lead us right into November. Of course, with the start of Dia de los Muertos this week, of course, we are talking about Coco. Yes, I am so excited to talk about this movie. I know, you've been, you've been excited for this one for a long time. It's a great movie. It's, I think, one of Disney Pixar's best. Yeah, it's. I mean, we're we're gonna save the final synopsis for for later on. But this one, obviously, very highly regarded. I say we just jump right into this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, we've buried the lead a little bit, but it's gonna be very easy to tell my thoughts on this movie from, you know, oh, in the next thirty seconds because I'm just gonna gush over it. Now I know that for you, it's it's not just the movie that you love so much as it is you love everything about this up to and including the holiday itself. Yeah, I love what the holiday represents. I mean, I'm a full-blooded Italian, so you're talking about somebody who has come from a culture of people that used to hire what they called whalers to go to funerals and cry. Stupid. (laughs) Not stupid, but very morose. I mean, it's already sad enough, and then you're just completely exploiting that. No, it's stupid. It's the equivalent of asking somebody to to scratch a sunburn for you. <laughs> you're sad enough. Why are you going to hire people to make it more dramatic than it already is? Well, that's what I love about what Dia de los Muertos represents, is that it looks at death as another stage of life. And... It's a celebration of life, really. And, you know, especially for a Disney movie that is aimed at children. I mean, this this is really aimed at I think the whole family can enjoy this one. But I think it makes it easier for children to understand. And it definitely makes it seem way less sad. And I think that's so important. I think this this movie does a really good job explaining the holiday. You know, and really breaking it down so that it is something that a child can understand. Because other than that, it's a very heavy topic. Yeah. And what amazes me is that it's so much more than the trailer made it out to be. When I initially saw the trailer for this movie, I thought it was about a little boy who was trying to track down his estranged musician relative. And it's not that at all. I can't believe the the difference in how this movie was marketed and what it is. Yeah, because what it is is something completely spiritual. Now, I have a coworker of mine who is of Mexican descent and I asked him, you know, how accurate this film is because I didn't know if they for a lack of better term, you know, Disney-fied it, you know? Right. I and, mean, you know they do their homework, but Right. And according to him, this is actually very accurate. Um, in regards to how they actually do celebrate the holiday. Um, as he had explained it to me, 
you see that um, they have all the food that is prepared and it's a big feast. The reason why they do that is because they take the favorite dishes from those who have passed away. Mm -hmm. They prepare them and they put them out as a way of inviting these people back. They want them to know that they did this for them. Right. Um, And I asked him, you know, is there traditional fare that you uh, prepare? Is it something where you can go into anybody's house and it's basically the same thing? And he said, no, not really. Because it it really depends on the person. Like in his house, for example, when they had the celebration for Dia de los Muertos, uh, mole, sweetbreads, fruits, beans, chicken, steak, tamales, cerveza, and tequila were really the staples of that house. So it's like they're preparing their favorite dish to call them back. Yeah. And I asked him, I'm like, well, let me, you know, I'm not trying to be ignorant. I'm just very curious. Do you actually believe that they come and visit you? Or is this something that you just think is a day of remembrance and that their spirit is around as long as you remember them? That sort of deal. And he said, no, we actually think that they come. And he said, I'll tell you why. They have two tables that they set. The table that the family sits at And then another table that's an empty table, similar to if you've gone to like a military memorial, they have like the missing soldiers table. Sure. Um, They set both tables. Now, they finish their meal at the family table. No sooner do they finish, do they go and eat the food that's on the table for the fallen relatives, Mm -hmm. for a lack of a better term. Now, the food doesn't sit there for any longer than it sat on their table. It's piping hot when they start to eat. By the time they finish their food, it's about lukewarm. Okay. But they are immediately going to take the other food. Logic dictates it would also be lukewarm. That food is ice cold. Oh, wow. So he says that that's how they know that the spirits came. They took the essence of the food and they have consumed it and left the physical food behind for the rest of the family to eat. And everybody gets to party. I love that. That is so much better than crying it out. Yep. And according to him, the you know the directors of this, or the director of this film, and those who made the film, I think were actually in and around his village for a couple of years studying the actual celebration of Dia de los Muertos. So they, he, he was aware of this film coming out quite some time ago. Oh wow. Yeah. I mean, we know Disney doesn't mess around when they do their research, but. I'm glad with something that is so important to a culture, they seem to really, really take care of this one and portray it in a way that makes it easy for everybody to understand. Mm -hmm. So do you want to get right into it? Yeah, let's do this. Um, So we're going to do this review linear style because there is a lot going on in this movie. Um, You know, it's simple enough for kids to understand, but it's just jam packed. So we're going to break this down scene by scene. Um, so immediately we open on our castle as per usual. Well, not a book. This time it's the castle. This might be the first, one of the first reviews we've done where it didn't open on a book. Oh my gosh. Other than Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. This is the second one, I think. Yeah. Um, so with your castle open, uh, you're immediately pulled into this world of Coco because they have When You Wish Upon a Star remixed mariachi style. And it sounds really cool. Yeah, it really does. Um, so we have our main character, Miguel, telling the story of his family who are from the fictional town of Santa Cecilia, which is named for the patron saint of music. We learn that his great, great grandmother, Imelda, was married to a musician who left her and their three year old daughter, Coco, to pursue his career. 
And he, when he never came back, Imelda forbid music of any kind in their home. The music banishment has lasted for generations, much to the dismay of Miguel, who wants to be a singer and guitar player like his idol, Ernesto de la Cruz, who is also a native of Santa Cecilia. Um, this opening narration is told over the narration or over the visuals of the story, and it's animated into those beautiful paper banners. The colors in this film are absolutely stunning, and it starts you off on that right away with just this simple animation. And that's not the first time that they've done something like that when they're when they're trying to connect culturally. If you remember, I believe it was Hercules where they did that as well. They had the clay pots with that Grecian uh, artwork, and the artwork came to life. That's right. I did not remember that. So Disney has done something like this in the past, and you know that they do take it very seriously, and they are trying to be sensitive to the culture. Absolutely. So as it turns out, we see that Miguel is actually recanting his family's history while he is shining the shoes of a mariachi in Mariachi Plaza. I need to call something to attention, because right after this happens, his family flips out on him for being in Mariachi Square, a Mariachi Plaza, right? And they are so upset that he is shining the shoes of a musician. He is a shoe shiner. This is his job. This is his responsibility. Right. He's not making the shoes. He's not old enough to do that. They sent him out with the sole purpose of making money for the family by shining shoes. What difference does it make whose shoes he is shining if they are paying customers? Well, his family has carried down this enforcement of no music whatsoever. But that is a fair point. But he's only, yeah, but he's only doing what they asked him to do, which was go make money by shining shoes. Right. Because when his grandma catches him, who I love, by the way, she is just a crazy grandma. She brings him back home and... She tells the rest of the family where she caught him, and she may as well have said that she found him in a crack den. She's so upset. I know. It's, I will say this, spoiler for the rest of the movie, it drives me crazy just how anti-music they are. I understand why they feel the way that they feel, but I am going to draw to attention a few things as this movie goes on where it's totally ridiculous that they cannot let this go, this being the least of it. But even this, to me, is over the top and ridiculous. Yeah, because they never really even give Miguel a chance to explain himself. And, you know, Miguel as a character is very endearing, and they just keep constantly shutting him down. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit over the top and ridiculous. In some ways, I do feel like the best relationship that he has is with his great-grandma Coco, who doesn't even really talk to him actually the way that they introduce their relationship is really smart and really well done um you know it's kind of done over a montage of miguel kind of just blabbering on about his interests and things that he's doing and grandma coco is just sitting there uh she's obviously very very old and uh she's in a wheelchair And I think you can say it alludes to that she has borderline dementia. But the way that Disney presents this, it kind of 
softens the blow. It's very, very subtle the way that it kind of touches on the aging process because the rest of Miguel's family really doesn't want to give him the time of day, but she's got nothing to do other than give him all of her attention. And they have this kind of weird unspoken bond. Yeah, and he puts her in like the luchador mask and it's yes. it leads to some very funny moments. It's it's a very nice connection that the two of them have. Yeah, it's very sweet. So on the day of the dead, the Rivera family puts their shoemaking business on the back burner to prep for the celebration which will lead the spirits of their ancestors home. During the preparations, Miguel accidentally breaks a picture of Coco with her parents by knocking it off the family of Frenda and discovers that the man whose face has been torn out, his great-great-grandfather, is holding a very familiar guitar, which Miguel believes belongs to De La Cruz. Now he's confident that he's destined to become a musician, and where he once hid his guitar playing and his shrine to De La Cruz, he doesn't care anymore because he thinks that he's a relative, and he announces to his family that he's going to enter a talent show in Mariachi Plaza, and this upsets his grandmother very, very much, so she smashes his guitar. Yeah, that that was so heart-wrenching to see because it's very clear that when you look at that guitar that that's not something that he picked up off the streets. It's not something he got in a pawn shop. Like, the fretboard, the frets were made from nails. Like, clearly, this is something he built on his own. He painted it to look like De La Cruz's, and it was just, it was a really harsh reaction. Right. And the other thing is that this really doesn't affect the grandmother so much. You know, it was Coco's father who left her. The grandmother is really just enforcing this rule out of respect to her mother, but it doesn't really seem like she should be all that bothered by it. I want to point out another bit of dialogue here. The issues that I have with this movie are clearly not with the visuals. Visually, it's amazing. It's stunning. Like when you were in Mariachi Plaza, um, you saw they had the De La Cruz statue Mm -hmm. and like the lime scale on it. Like it just, it looked so real. And I think obviously Coco looks unbelievable. The character, she looks so lifelike. You know, we talk about, um, last episode, we talked about The Black Cauldron Mm -hmm. and how that movie even though it wasn't all that good, was technically significant and how animation has become so much more sophisticated. I remember when Toy Story came out Mm -hmm. and they talked about the detail in that film and at the time it took them six months just to do the hair on Andy's head. I can't even imagine how much time it took them to get that much detail on Mama Coco. Oh gosh, she is wrinkled like a football. I mean, I have to imagine that with the technological advances since Toy Story came out, it probably sped up the process, but I would think it would have taken about as long as Andy's hair just because there are so many wrinkles. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to the dialogue. The di- where I have issues with this film throughout is sloppy, inconsistent, confusing dialogue. For example, when he explains that he wants to be a musician and De La Cruz and this and that... The grandmother goes, that man's music was a curse. We're going to find out soon that that wasn't really his music. I want you to remember that. I can't get too far into it right now as to why I feel that way because we are doing this linear. Right. Um, but I want you to remember that because I'm going to make a point about it later. Right. And 
you know, like I said, I absolutely adore this movie, but these dialogue issues that we're going to point out are what stops it from being a perfect film. It is near perfect, but there are some loopholes here. Absolutely. So despite his family's objections, Miguel runs away to enter the talent show anyway with the help of another family member. A.K.A. he breaks into De La Cruz's mausoleum and takes the guitar that he's been buried with. When Miguel plays the guitar, he is then transported between the world of the living and the dead, and the living can no longer see him. He then meets his deceased family, who he somehow recognizes in skeletal form from their pictures on the ofrenda. A family member's picture must be on the ofrenda for them to cross over, and we learn that Mama Imelda has been blocked from coming back. Um, we need to pause right here and talk about how gorgeous this cemetery is on Dia de los Muertos. Um, it's amazing to me that they have all of these flower petals scattered everywhere, and they're orange and they're glowing, but this is taking place at dusk, so you've got a lot of purples and blues in the sky, and it's just amazing how they blend these hot and cool colors. It's just absolutely gorgeous. I absolutely love the alternative world that they've created between the world of the living and the world of the dead and the perspective that it provides. The Bridge of Marigolds is phenomenal. I love how they bridge the two worlds with that specific visual. Um, I think that in terms of settings, this is probably the most beautiful setting you've ever seen in a Disney film. I think it actually might have taken it from Frozen. To me, Elsa's castle was the prettiest, but I think this actually kind of knocks it off the top of the pedestal. Yeah. And what I love about this scene, too, is the reveal when Miguel realizes what's happening to him and that he is caught between this world of the living and the dead. Um, you know, it's just kind of like this weird tone, not in a bad way, where he recognizes his family. So they're obviously familiar to him, but at the same time, he's just meeting these perfect strangers and he kind of just trusts them and runs off with them into the land of the dead. And we see the Back to the Future fade. Yes. For those of you who don't who don't know what I'm talking about, the Back to the Future fade, if you've seen the original Back to the Future film from 1985. Marty McFly travels back to 1955 and he's, his brother and sister disappear off his photograph, but then he starts to disappear. His hand starts to disappear and he has to get back to 1985. You see something very similar happening here where you see Miguel is starting to transform and fade away into skeletal form because if he's not back by sunrise... He can't go back to the land of the living. And there's part of your conflict. Right. We learn that this isn't just because he's crossed over to the land of the dead. It's because he's cursed because he stole from the dead. He stole De La Cruz's guitar thinking that it was his great-great-grandfather's. And now because he stole it, he's got to pay for it. Right. Because this is a day where you're supposed to give, not take. Exactly. So the Rivera family crosses over the bridge um, into this beautiful setting of the land of the dead, which is hilariously juxtaposed against this TSA style entrance and deportation from the land of the dead. Yeah, it's really good. So 
as I said, your picture has to be on an ofrenda uh, so that you can cross over. So they're they're scanning people and then their picture comes up like in an x-ray machine that locates the picture to make sure you're good to clear it. Um, so they bring Miguel back over. They find Mama Imelda and Miguel lets her know that it's his fault that she can't come back into the land of the living because he knocked the picture off the ofrenda. And he has it in his hand. That's why it's not there. Yes. Um, So in order for Miguel to cross back over and restore the picture to the ofrenda so that Mama Imelda can come back, he must receive a blessing from his family member. So Mama Imelda offers to give it to him on one condition, no more music. So Miguel refuses her blessing and runs away from his newfound family to seek out De La Cruz for his blessing instead. I have a huge issue with this. Do you? Yeah. Because they have up to this point preached how important family is and how important Dia de los Muertos is. And we have to do this for our family and our family this and our family that. And we make shoes and blah, 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 blah. You love your family so much, yet you will let this young boy die because he wants to play a guitar. Because you are so staunch and so stubborn in your ways, you hate music so much that you will literally kill one of your grandchildren to see so that he never plays music again. How does that make any sense, and how is that consistent at all with the message that they have sent other than they hate music? It is a fair point. I mean, Mama Imelda is clearly doing what she thinks is going to save him from this horrible musician's life that she thinks that he's going to lead just because she got burned by it in her lifetime. But it does go against the family first that they are preaching. You're right, because essentially he will die. He's not going to die some horrible death, but he is going to be trapped in the land of the dead. Right. I understand you need a conflict and you ha- you have to have a reason for him to go and find De La Cruz. But if we're talking in reality here, th- this would never happen. Sure. No one would kill their, dra- their grandchild so that they couldn't sing music or perform a song. This just would not happen. Even if they thought it meant protecting them. That's correct. So in his search for De La Cruz, Miguel meets Hector, who is a down-on-his-luck ragamuffin who is blocked from entering the land of the living because nobody has his picture on the ofrenda. Hector tells Miguel that he knows De La Cruz and will take Miguel to meet him, but in exchange, Miguel must take Hector's photo back to the land of the living and put it on an ofrenda so that he can cross over. Hector takes Miguel to the shanty town where he lives, and Miguel sees what happens when a memory of the deceased is forgotten. Have I talked about the setting yet? Because the settings are just amazing. Even this little shanty town is gorgeous. It's ridiculous. It's all broken down houses, but it's set like it almost looks like the bayou. Although probably not. It probably is more representative of Mexico where I have never been. But it just reminded me of like, it it reminded me of New Orleans a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I mean, I've never been to Mexico or New Orleans, but based upon photographs that I've seen, I see where you draw that comparison. And and the visual of the final death, which is what they call it when they eventually fade away, is, it's a very sad moment. It's a very powerful visual because you're watching this 
skeleton, this sugar skull spirit for all intents and purposes, literally fade into gold dust and then drift off. They're just gone. They're a distant memory never to be seen again. Right, because I think the idea is that eventually the people who knew you in life are passing down your stories and passing down your memory, but there's going to come a point generation to generation where those stories get lost and eventually they're kind of ebbed out. And what's amazing is that, you know, we've just gotten to the land of the dead and we're talking about how beautiful everything is. So it almost makes the afterlife seem, you know, regardless of what you believe in, as far as your religion, it makes the afterlife not seem so bad. It makes it seem, you know, like heaven, what, what you know, you imagine it to be. And then you just get crushed because there is, it, it's like dying a second time. Right. Whereas, you know, depending on your religion, and we're not here to get involved in a religious conversation, but for those who believe in heaven, when you die, you go to heaven. It's just where you go. But on in this world, you don't just go to heaven. You live in what is considered to be a heaven, but then you die again, and then they don't know what happens to you. Exactly. And it becomes a lot more permanent. So that within itself is scary, because you got to go through this twice, and you don't know what's going to happen the second time. But I think it does lead, even still, it leads to a very comforting visual where when somebody passes away, again, to be geared towards a child when someone you care about passes away they're not actually gone they just move on to this next stage of life what this scene really is is disney pixar's tendency to stab the knife in and then twist it yeah and they do it as well as anyone if not if not better (laughs) so hector and miguel devise a plan so that they can get miguel to meet de la cruz um Miguel decides to enter yet another talent show, this time in the Land of the Dead, where the prize is to perform at De La Cruz's party, which he has prior to his Sunrise concert. Miguel is very nervous because even though he knows how to play guitar, he has never performed in front of an audience before. And they do such a great job with this scene because as a viewer... We're so invested in Miguel getting what he wants at this point, but we kind of realize like, oh, wow, we've never actually seen him perform before. We know he knows how to play the guitar, but every time he's actually tried to perform, he has been stopped. So we don't know if he can actually pull this off either. Correct. And now we go into the song Poco Loco, which has quickly become one of my favorite musical numbers in the Disney catalog ever. Um, there is just so much going on here for the story, for the characters, and it's just executed so well. So we're in the Plaza de la Cruz where they're having this show and everybody's kind of warming up and Miguel wants to play de la Cruz's biggest hit, Remember Me. But as we kind of look around the square, everybody is warming up to Remember Me. So Hector's like, no, 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 no play something else, pick something else. So Miguel picks uh, Poco Loco. And what I love about the song is that it was written for the movie, but it feels like a song you're supposed to know, like almost like a folk song that you've kind of grown up on. Yeah, it sounds familiar, right? Yeah. Uh, So he's playing it and the crowd kind of gets into it. And the crowd in Plaza de la Cruz, it looks 
just like the Mexico Pavilion at Epcot, which I love too, because you're immediately tied to the parks. Again, I've never been to Mexico. I'm sure it looks like Mexico too, and they did a wonderful job, but I really have no basis of comparison. Yeah, the closest that. we've been to Mexico is the Tequila Cave <laughs> in World <laughs> Showcase. So what I love most about this whole sequence is that it's a huge character moment for Miguel because he realizes that he can in fact do this and he can perform um, but you see the bond start to develop between him and Hector because Hector eventually is pulled up on the stage and he starts dancing along with Miguel and you can kind of see it go from you know a common interest and a common goal to a trust to a friendship over the course of this song. And it is here at this point where I did take a guess at how the rest of the movie was going to play out. And I was right, but it didn't take away from anything for me. My big takeaway from this scene is this kid can sing. Yeah. Like this, I, I, the, the actor's name slips my mind, but musically he's incredibly inclined. He's got a huge range. Yeah. In this song. Yeah. So after the talent show, Miguel's family of deceased skeletal relatives catches up to him. And they've tracked him down with the help of Mama, Mama Imelda's spirit guide, Pepito. Uh, once you get to the afterlife, everyone's given an animal that kind of guides them on their way. And Pepita is a big, colorful, almost like a sphinx-like creature. Um, you know, it kind of looks like a tiger with wings. It's very, very cool looking and it definitely serves the purpose of the story. But I feel like if this is supposed to be a representation of Mama, of Mama Imelda, there's a little bit of a disconnect for me. I disagree. It's loud, it's bombastic, and it's, it's authoritative. I think that's exactly <laughs> who she is. I mean, I, I, Yes, in the sense of, yeah, she kind of seems like a, you know, she's definitely the matriarch of the family. She kind of seems like a lioness. I guess this is kind of cat-like, but I don't know. I, I think the visual is stronger than Pepita as a character. Mm -hmm. um, so Miguel sees them coming and he runs away. Right. And it's at this point that Mama Imelda reveals to... Miguel that um, she used to love music and she loved performing with her husband and she starts to sing. We are now home to what is without question the worst bit of dialogue in this movie. It's one of the worst bits of dialogue on film in cinema. Yowza. Because it completely contradicts the last sentence that was just spoken by the same exact character <laughs> while arguing about his love for music and why he should have to follow what she says about not performing it anymore. The line reads, why should I have to pick sides? Pick my side. Why should I have to pick sides? Pick my side. See, it's absolutely unforgivably bad. When we saw this in theaters, we came out of the theater and 
it was something that you were harping on quite a bit. In fact, I remember seeing friends later that night who asked us how the movie was and you were still on it. I did not remember that that line came in secession because I was so focused on the tear jerking end of this movie. But now upon my third, fourth, fifth viewings of it, it's pretty bad. For a movie that's otherwise so well crafted, for a movie that tells a wonderful story with fun characters, outstanding music, and over-the-top incredible visuals, how the screenwriting at times in this movie is so bad is beyond me. And how it got past this many people, because you have to imagine, there's a lot of sets of eyes that are reading a script, proofreading a script, and then, you know, editing a film... There's a lot of eyes on this movie, especially because it's Disney. It's not like it's some low-budget indie film. How did this bit of dialogue get past this many people into a finished product, which is otherwise very good? I'm just I'm going to bury the lead a little bit now, and I will say that I have a few more lines that I'm going to call to your attention. And it's stuff like this that keeps this movie, in my opinion from being the greatest Disney film ever made. Yeah. And it frustrates me. It's why I'm so passionate about why I'm so annoyed about it because for so many reasons, this should be the greatest Disney movie of all time. And it isn't because of sloppy dialogue. The, and it and it's irrational. There were a lot of cracks that dialogue had to fall through. Big time. And I I understand, I mean, I'm not trying to make excuses for it you can argue that Miguel is a child, so he's acting like a child. You don't know any better. You just kind of speak from your heart. But even in a moment of anger, I think you kind of have to realize that you just said the complete opposite. You would think. So... Now that Miguel has run away from Mama Imelda once again, he sneaks into De La Cruz's mansion where Ernesto is delighted to learn that he has a great-great-grandson and they bond immediately and they start singing and sharing stories. Um, this is another sequence I love because getting up to De La Cruz's mansion, uh, I kind of want to call it like the Cruz of Cabana. It, like it, reminds me of like old Hollywood and like what you'd imagine going to the Copacabana to be. You have to, there's like a holding area and they're loading people into trams to get up to the mansion. Um, so it, it's very like 50 style Hollywood almost. And then once you get up to the mansion, to me, De La Cruz is like Elvis. Everything from the white sparkly jumpsuits. I mean, I know that is a traditional mariachi style, but he's got the slicked back hair. He's got this guitar shaped pool, which if you've ever been to Graceland, they do not have a guitar shaped pool. They have one at the days Inn across the street. <laughs> um, but highly, highly recommend Graceland. If it's you've awesome. never been, even if you're not an Elvis fan, it's just absolutely incredible. Um, and now I've kind of lost my train of thought thinking about Elvis. Well, but <laughs> but you but you bring Elvis up, and and it's true because 
you know, even the physical features of De La Cruz, the broad shoulders with the pronounced jawline and, and the chin, it, it did draw a comparison and musically as well. This right. is somebody that's considered to be the greatest musician of all time in Mexico, paved the way for so many others, a great influence to the world, much like Elvis Presley. And did the, did the film and did the stage. He was more than just a singer. Right. So, yeah, I think the Elvis comparison is is excellent, especially because we have been to Graceland. Graceland does kind of have the same feel of, of his mansion in this film. What I love about that scene is that, again, the visuals are phenomenal. Um, it kind of had that modern Gatsby party look to it. Yeah. In, in the new Gatsby movie, you know, the really bad one with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, I don't blame DiCaprio. I blame Bosler. That movie stunk, but had nice visuals. That's sort of what this reminded me of and also fit the time period. Yeah. So De La Cruz and Miguel spend the night getting to know each other. And as dawn approaches, Miguel is starting to fade away pretty bad. So De La Cruz is about to send him home with his blessing when Hector barges in disguised as Frida Kahlo and reminds Miguel of the deal to take his picture back to the ofrenda. When De La Cruz recognizes Hector, an old argument reignites from their days of performing together as musicians. Hector was trying to break their partnership and return home to his family, but De La Cruz wanted to put their career first, so he poisons Hector and used his songs to take all of the credit for himself. Fueled by ego and concern for his reputation, De La Cruz takes the photo of Hector so it can never be placed on an ofrenda and refuses to give Miguel his blessing and calls for security to take both of them away. Um, this is kind of what I had figured out during Poco Loco that Hector actually was Miguel's family. Um, I think it was just that they did such a great job of developing this bond between them. You could kind of see that there was more of that. Like I had talked about when he first met his, his family before they cross over to the land of the dead, there's just some kind of familiarity there. And they just did such a good job of creating that feeling without even knowing anything that's going on couple of things I want to call to attention here. I, I mentioned a little while ago the line of that man's music was a curse. Um, that would imply that De La Cruz was family, not Hector. Um, at the beginning of the movie, Miguel says that his great-great-grandfather had the dream to play for the world, but he didn't. Ernesto did, as we have now found out. What I need to call to attention here is the fact that it, it almost seems as if Hector and um, Imelda never spoke about anything, ever. How did she, A, not recognize that it was her husband's songs that De La Cruz was singing? Can't imagine she never heard any of his music before. Number two, that his guitar magically becomes one of the most famous guitars in the world because De La Cruz is playing it. Three, this wasn't his dream. How did you not know what his dream was? He's your husband. Did you really think that he was just going to leave you and never come back? Let's not forget that De La Cruz becomes so famous, yet you never hear from or see your husband again. 
Not even like in a, not even on television or in the radio. Never a picture, a photograph, in a magazine, a newspaper, nothing. He's just gone. Gone. Never to be seen again. All this evidence that he exists, yet he's gone forever. Without a spoken word. He's just gone. Okay, let's let's dial it back. There are a couple of things that are, are going on here. Um, so, yes, Hector's memory has been erased because Imelda was pissed off. You know, we're only getting the Rivera family's side of the story. So Imelda has told Coco, who has then told their daughter, that her husband just upped and left her. We're only getting this one side of the story. So, of course, it's going to be skewed in the direction that Imelda wanted it to be. We also need to keep in mind that we are not in an age of social media. So, of course, she's not really going to know who De La Cruz is or how his career has taken off or where he got these songs from. She has sworn off music altogether. So she's completely ignoring any of this. However, to your point, yes, Hector did leave her to go pursue his musical career. So where did he go? You would think that she would at least have some idea of where he was or if his career had taken off or, you know, being that he was partners with Ernesto, Ernesto's taken off and he's, he's nowhere to be seen. Yeah. It's just a lot of questions here that are left unanswered, but to be fair, she's not really looking for it. Mm -hmm. Um, to that point though, you know, Hector's story is just really sad because all we've gotten is Imelda's point of view. She makes him out to be this horrible guy that just upped and left her with a three-year-old. But what we are just learning is that Hector's life was almost stolen twice. While him and De La Cruz are having this argument in the, in the mansion, um, Miguel realizes that it sounds familiar because... Ernesto tells Hector he would move heaven and earth for him. In other words, to send him back with the photo so that Miguel can put it on the ofrenda. He wants to make it happen and he wants to help them out until he realizes that his reputation is in jeopardy. And when he says that move heaven and earth, it triggers Miguel's memory that that's a line from one of De La Cruz's movies. And the movies have been playing all around this room in the mansion during the party. And he spots the exact clip of what it is. And in the film, De La Cruz poisons his partner after toasting him with that line. And he realizes that that is, in fact, what Ernesto did to Hector back in the day when he was ready to break up their career. Because until then, everybody thought Hector died from eating some bad chorizo. Yeah, you go from liking De La Cruz to hating him almost instantaneously, but it's also seamless. I mean, think about this. How arrogant is this person that he literally took a crime that he committed and turned it into a film for the world to see? Yeah. Just his own dirty secret. Basically, his admission of guilt to the world that up to this point, no one would have ever realized. It is almost like that, don't they say like serial killers in a way want to be caught? Yeah. 
it's that's kind of the sociopath thing that de la cruz is doing here and what's really remarkable about this reveal too is that we're about three quarters of the way through this movie and we just learn who our villain is i know and the sad thing is that when ernesto and miguel are bonding it was a really nice bond and it seemed so real of course it's totally fake but it seemed so real you were so happy for miguel but that bond means nothing and de la cruz throws both miguel and hector down into a sinkhole uh so Hector reveals that the real reason he needs to go to the land of the living is to make things right with his daughter so that she won't forget him and he won't disappear. Miguel realizes that it was Hector who was torn out of his great grandma Coco's photo and that Hector is actually his family. And as I mentioned before, this is what I had figured out during Poco Loco. uh, But it didn't take away from this moment because Hector is starting to disappear you know, he's starting to glow. And uh, it's really sad because now not only was his life taken from him, as we just learned, because De La Cruz murdered him, but his whole memory has been erased because Imelda was angry at him. Yeah, I think that they tried too hard to develop a twist here. You know that there's a twist coming, but I feel that they tried so hard to beat it over your head that De La Cruz was the family member. It was his music, and it was his dream, and he left. That I I almost feel like it kind of cheapened this. See, even having figured out what happened, it didn't take away anything from me. But you're right, they do try to drive it home because they do a montage of him bonding with De La Cruz that parallels the one with him and Coco in the beginning, where... um, you know, he's just kind of rambling on a little bit and he has a dimple on one side and he keeps saying dimple, no dimple. Um, You know, and it's those kinds of things that the rest of his family is ignoring, but Coco is giving him the attention and De La Cruz, who just found out he had, or so he thought, a great-great-grandson, thinks it's fascinating. Yeah. So... Hector and Miguel are down in the pit, and as dawn grows closer, Mama Imelda finally catches up to them uh, because Pepita has tracked them down, and he rescues them out of the sinkhole. Miguel then reveals the truth about Hector's death, and while Mama Imelda is not willing to forgive her ex-husband, she does decide to help him and Miguel. The Riveras crash De La Cruz's Sunrise concert to retrieve the photo, which De La Cruz has stolen, And again, he tries to kill Miguel by throwing him off the top of the stadium. Ernesto's final attempt at murder is all caught on camera and broadcast to the rest of the stadium who turn on their idol and throw him out where he is crushed by a giant bell, which is what killed him in life. So the majority of this takes place during a musical number called La Lorna. Uh, La Lorna, I believe, was not written for this film. It is actually... uh, traditional song and ironically it is sung by Mama Imelda so they're going to retrieve Hector's photo and backstage there is a classic Disney snatch and grab for this photo and while they have Ernesto pinned down Mama Imelda springs up on a rising platform and all of a sudden she finds herself on stage and these people are expecting a show so she has no other choice but to sing. And Miguel sets up a microphone backstage and puts it in front of Hector so that Hector can play guitar to accompany her. And 
with really no words spoken to each other, you can see that there is sort of a forgiveness starting to happen between Imelda and Hector. Well, that's that's kind of funny because about five minutes before this, she finds out that it was not a matter of Hector leaving the family to go pursue a career. They explained to her that he was murdered by Ernesto, to which she responds, well, what if it is true? And then goes on to say how angry she is that she had to raise a child by herself. We're not going to gloss over the fact that you were a single mom. We're not saying that that was easy. But you were just told that he was murdered and you're still mad at him. Like, why are you mad at him for being murdered? He didn't intentionally get murdered. That is true. It wasn't his fault, and he was trying to do the right thing by going back to his family. Yeah. However, there is something that we have to keep in mind here. This didn't happen 10 years ago, and you run into your ex somewhere in town. This happened over a lifetime. Mama Imelda in skeleton form has a gray streak in her hair, so we can assume she passed in what? Her 60s, 70s, maybe? So she's had probably 50 plus years to be pissed off at her ex so now this is the first chance that she's gotten to let him have it she's got a lot of anger stored away yeah i i don't buy it i'm 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 gonna we're gonna agree to disagree on that one (laughs) the bigger issue that takes me out of this scene and there's really not a lot that took me out of this movie at all is that during the sequence when ernesto makes his final murder attempt on Miguel to throw him over the side of the stadium, all of a sudden, the rest of the Rivera family becomes technical directors and camera techs. They, you know, the concert is being broadcast on the Jumbotron to the stadium, and one of Miguel's aunts aims the camera at Ernesto so that the whole confession is broadcast, and the other one actually hits the button on the board to take the camera. Which is amazing, considering that they never had a record player in their house. <laughs> they know they somehow know how to operate a control panel. Right. Um, but the scene does tie up at the end. I love the irony of the way that Ernesto goes out. I don't think this is a final death for him because the memory is not being forgotten. But he does get crushed by a bell, which is what kills him in life. And... I love that because it's so reminiscent of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And we talked about how funny that line is that a piano fell on his head because it's delivered so deadpan. Now we actually see it play out and it's hilarious. Yeah. Although not a piano, it is a bell. And then you get the guy that comes in with the, with the street corn. What did I miss? Yeah. <laughs> like, we've all been there. It's happened to all of us. Don't go late to concert, folks. No. That's the big takeaway from this. So now we are at almost the break of dawn and Miguel has really got to go. So Hector and Mama Imelda send him back to the land of the living with their blessing. And the only condition this time is to never forget how much his family loves him. Miguel makes it back as the sun rises. And despite his grandmother's attempts to stop him again, he serenades his great grandma Coco with remember me in hopes that it will jog her memory of her father. Remember Me is De La Cruz's biggest hit, but we learn that it was actually one of Hector's songs that he stole. So Hector used to sing this to Coco before he went out on the road, 
And as Miguel is playing it, Coco actually finishes it with him as if it's a duet. And she reveals that she has had Hector's picture, the piece of the torn picture, the entire time, along with poems and letters that Hector wrote to her when he was traveling. Um, one question that I did have from this movie, actually, was that, you know, Miguel spent a lot of time with Hector in the Land of the Dead, and now he is coming back to the Land of the Living with his memory. So it was a race against time to get back so that Coco would remember him, but couldn't Miguel's memory now be enough to keep him in the land of the dead? No, because they pointed out earlier that it could only be a memory of those who knew you while you were living. Okay, well, there you go. They actually did have a throwaway line, a worthwhile throwaway line. <laughs> well, they did. A, and see, that's where, you know, this movie does really tie everything up so nicely that it's those little pieces of dialogue that really do destroy it because it's otherwise so perfect. Um, what I love about this sequence, though, is that Remember Me takes on a completely different meaning. It really almost has like three meanings throughout the whole movie. The first time we hear it is in a flashback of De La Cruz's career showing him you know, on his rise to the top. And it's an upbeat song and it almost leads you to believe that it's about a romantic relationship. Like he wrote it for somebody that, you know, he's leaving behind. Then in a flashback, you see Hector singing it to Coco before he's about to take off. And, you know, that's obviously the real meaning of the song. But now it comes full circle because when Miguel and Coco were singing it, you almost feel like Coco is starting to say goodbye and she's asking to be remembered. Well, it's there's no mystery behind the fact that you know Disney has Disney always kills a parent or in the last couple of movies it's been a grandparent and usually it happens in the beginning of the movie in this case it happens at the end of this movie. Spoiler Coco dies. Um but but it, it's no surprise at all when it happens. Right. Because he talks early in the movie about how she's getting forgetful and it's a race of against time to get back because they don't want Hector to be forgotten about and they don't want Miguel to get stuck in the land of the dead. But we're going to draw attention to the fact that they don't want Hector to be forgotten about because she's fading away and very quickly. Right. So when that moment actually comes, it comes as no surprise to anybody. And like you said, it's sort of her swan song. It is, but... You know, it also shows, I think, part of the point of this movie is to demonstrate the power of music. It helps her remember, and in a way, it helps bring the family together. Right. Uh, because the next year, um, the photo of Hector and Imelda with Coco is restored to the ofrenda, along with a more recent picture of Coco, which does confirm, as you said, that she passes. And Hector's memory is not only alive and well with his family, but with the rest of Santa Cecilia, where he now has a museum dedicated to his music. The Riveras, both living and dead, come together to celebrate Dia de los Muertos as a family, and it is at this point I am bawling my damn eyes out. You can't make it through this movie, regardless <sighs> of how many times you've seen it. Not, like, shed a tear. I am crying like Coco was my grandma. Like, I... 
like I had a lump in my throat at the end of the movie when we saw it in theaters, and that's about as far as it went. No, I've seen it probably five, six times now. Hysterics every time. The ending is predictable, but it's powerful nonetheless. Yes. What makes it such a powerful ending is you really don't know. Like, am I supposed to be happy or not? Because it's nice that they're all together. It's nice that they all go home together. It's nice that they all have the music together. They're dead. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm happy, but you're dead. That, and it's like I said before, it's Disney Pixar's penchant for twisting that knife. Coco is reunited with Hector and Mama Imelda and they're a family. Mama Imelda has obviously forgiven Hector at this point. But they've reunited there crossing the bridge back over to the land of the living. And yes, they're all together. But yeah, that doesn't take away from the fact that they're dead. And it's nice to see that Coco got a happy ending, but that you know, her family on earth still misses her. And I think that's the real gut wrenching part for me is that, you know, Miguel is explaining to his baby sister now what Dia de los Mortis means, uh, not just in the context of the holiday, but in everything that he's been through now and he's experienced. And now he's got the loss of his grandma Coco or his great grandma Coco, but now his grandmother has lost her mother and like this is obviously kind of a painful thing for her because it's the first Dia de los Muertos that she's celebrating without her mother right um, but it, it is nice at the end and he's in his kind of traditional mariachi garb and the rest of the family is now playing instruments so they've all taken to music which is kind of nice but at the same time you want to slap him for giving him such a hard time forever <laughs> <laughs> but but interesting um, you wonder if Miguel can see his family obviously mm. the rest of them can't but because he's gone to the land of the dead and he's come back can he see them that's left sort of ambiguous but i think that that's kind of the point is that it's not necessarily about seeing it it's about feeling it and feeling your family around you. and obviously he knows that they're there Um, And that's also, you know, how music plays a role in this movie is that it brought them all together. And it's that power of music that's continuing to do that. Yeah. Two things that I didn't get a chance to bring up that I had forgotten. Um, The first, we have a hidden Mickey in this movie. Yes. In the rehearsal space, you have like a sugar skull hidden Mickey. Yeah. It's kind of like a float slash statue i don't really know how to describe it it's very quick i think it's a float um it is a sugar skull and it's got like two pieces behind it that clearly form the ears you almost don't catch it because we didn't really get to talk about the scene is that before miguel enters the talent show they're running through this like warehouse area where everybody's prepping for it and the float is a piece of Frida Kahlo's set, but they actually have like the skeleton of Frida Kahlo make a like cameo for all intents and purposes in this movie. And I feel like I, I just think that's so funny that they did that, that they use this iconic figure. You know, it's not like they had to get a celebrity appearance and they had to clear it. They just, you know, used an icon that everybody's going to recognize. Mm-hmm. Just very clever. So let's quickly talk about the music Yeah, in this movie, now that we've kind of finally gotten through the plot of the film. 
I think the music in this movie is as good, if not better, than the music in almost any other Disney film. It's amazing. And they also did such a beautiful job of blending the English and Spanish. Like in Poco Loco specifically, they make English and Spanish words rhyme. Yeah. And they just kind of seamlessly transition back and forth. Um, this music was done by the uh, the Lopez's, who we know from Frozen. And um, Remember Me won an Academy Award for Best Original Song. And it deserved it. It is such a good oh, song. Absolutely. Because as you touched upon before, it takes on so many forms. It, it's a happy song. It's a sad song, you know, depending on the speed and in which context you're singing it. That's the brilliance of that song. And in a lot of ways, that's the brilliance of this movie is you're getting torn in two different directions. Um, this movie should be the greatest Disney movie of all time, and it isn't. And that's what frustrates me about it. <sighs> so if I'm so critical about it, if I seem overly critical, that's why. I wouldn't even call this criticism. I, I think you're giving it some tough love. Yeah, to say the least. In spite of all of that, part of what makes this movie so great is Miguel because of how endearing he is. He is. He, in the beginning, was a little annoying to me because for as much as he was shut down by his family, the way that he persisted with playing music was almost just as bad as they were. Um, so I think that got a lot, a little drawn out in the beginning for me, but by the time we hit Poco Loco, he has completely won me over. Right. Yeah. He is stubborn, but it's, it's not in a way that I can disagree with. I mean, the kid just wants to be a musician. He loves music and he's not going to let anything stand in his way. I, I give him credit for it. Like he's, here's the difference. He's willing to lose his life for what he believes in. Mm -hmm. Whereas his family's ready to kill him out of stubbornness. Right. Because he really didn't want to go back without Hector's photo. He was trying desperately to, to make things right for him. Mm -hmm. And the only reason he gets sent back is because they, they hit him with the the blessing. The blessing is a physical entity. It's a piece of the marigold. And as soon as it touches Miguel, he goes back to the land of the living. Right. But he didn't want to do that to Hector. Correct. So I guess in conclusion, it's, it's a great movie. And uh, you should definitely check it out. And I, I wish I could tell you it's the best Disney film of all all time. I just can't do it. And I actually remember when I walked out of this theater, after seeing this movie for the first time, my initial reaction was, just goes to show how special Frozen was. Yeah. Because Frozen was basically a flawless movie, in my opinion. We'll talk about it in a few weeks, because we do have it on the docket. But that's the last Disney film that I remember watching and thinking to myself, that was perfect. I mean, for me, it is so near perfect. I think the dialogue issues bother you more than they bother me. Um, I just, like I said before, I adore this movie. Uh, it's stunning. Have I mentioned it's stunning? Because it's stunning. Um, but I love that they took something that is typically very, very sad and made it 
very, very uplifting. And for as much as, you know, I've talked about Disney Pixar stabbing you in the heart and twisting the knife, um, they really did an amazing job by putting a, a positive spin on something that's very, very sad. And that's what they do best is Disney Pixar will take such a simple concept like a child's toy, like a monster in a closet, like a race, and they build these incredible stories around them. And this is just another one of those things that they took an idea. And what's amazing is they they celebrated a culture in such a respectful way, I think. Um, and they took this concept and made it something tangible. Like they actually you know, they took a spiritual belief and they made it a reality that you could cross between these both worlds. And I think when you put it on those terms for a child, it makes death seem like less of a scary thing. And I think that that's amazing, not just to do that for children, but to do that for families, because it did, like I said, it was just uplifting to me. And I think the Latino influence in this country is so large Obviously, we know that. Um, I think the fact that Disney was able to finally introduce something for you know that that connected to to the Latino culture, and that they did something so well, really. If if you're of Latino background, this movie is something that I I think most people are very proud of. I would hope so. I'd I'd actually be curious. It, you know, if the Latino culture does find fault with it, what it is. Yeah, we want to hear from you at Monoreal Radio, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Let us know what you think about Coco. Uh, I could tell you that there's going to be a lot of people with opinions in regards to our bit of news for this week. Ugh. You want to talk about a movie franchise moving forward. Maybe it's time that, that we take Pirates of the Caribbean and make it a Disney Pixar film because it seems like that's really the only way that they're going to CPR this franchise, which, oh, by the way, really only had two good movies out of five. If you thought that Coco makes me cry, this news breaks my heart even more. Um, Curse of the Black Pearl is one of my top five, not just Disney movies, like favorite movies of all time. Pirates is my favorite ride. They turned it into a movie. I have a lot invested in it. And the way that this franchise has gone downhill on the back end of these movies, on the back end with the sequels, has just been very upsetting, to say the least. So now you're telling me that you're going to reboot it, which is completely unnecessary. I mean... We've had too many sequels, but you know what? Johnny Depp does such an amazing job with Captain Jack Sparrow. I don't care if he makes these movies until he dies. He's not. I going will to watch Jack. him at seventy years old being Jack Sparrow. But yes, no, I just learned that today <laughs> that they're doing a reboot without him. Yeah, he's been fired. It's it's all over. I don't know how true that is. Well, the rumor is that he has been let go. Here's the thing, though. I would be more upset if you were doing a sequel without him and he was just like a distant memory in a sequel. If you're doing a reboot, then, 
okay, it's a reboot. You're doing all new characters. So that's that's fine. We don't need to reboot a franchise whose last movie came out a year ago. That's my argument. You yes, just Johnny Depp aside, a that's a whole nother bridge to cross for me. But yeah, we don't need a reboot. Just make it go away for a while. But you know what they're probably going to do? Because they introduced Penelope Cruz in... The last, or no, no two, that was two movies no, ago. Yeah, on Stranger Tides, which was the only other good Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I'm thinking it's going to be female pirates, maybe. I wouldn't be opposed to it. I'm interested to see what these writers can do. These are the guys that wrote Deadpool. So I think that the snappy dialogue, it would work. I, I, I think that they, they're probably the best people to call on right now to do it just on dialogue alone. Of course, of course it's going to be PG 13 rated. It's not going to cross over into the R rating that Deadpool did. Although that would be very interesting to see an R rated pirates of the Caribbean. Um, but I, I don't think it's necessary. I think these movies just need to go away for a little while. Give us something new. Give us something fresh. Go away. Yeah. I mean, like I said, huge, huge fan, but they forced too many out. They got greedy and they cranked him out when the scripts really weren't that strong and it did nothing to further the story. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. Again, we are on social media uh, at Monoreal Radio on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Let us know what you think about the news about Pirates of the Caribbean. Of course, thank you to our friends over at Amazon.com. Once again, monorealradio.wixsite.com slash home. Links to Amazon Instant Video. You can watch all the films that we talk about, and we will be back to talk about more films next week. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.